We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular ICRT commentator Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone by Taipei-based journalist Ralph Jennings. Hi, Gavin. Good to be here again. Tonight, we'll be discussing an angry reaction to reports that the KMT plans to replace Han Guo Yu as its 2020 candidate, Terry Guo talking the economy and vowing to evoke the spirit of former President Jiang Jingguo, the Solomon Islands' ties with Taiwan, calls for Norway to correct Taiwan's designation on residence permits, President Tsai Ing-wen urging members of the armed forces to wear their uniforms more often as a sign of pride and slime. But we'll begin with President Tsai Ing-wen once again reiterating her support for the Hong Kong protesters this week, saying her administration will provide necessary assistance to Hong Kong people here in Taiwan based on humanitarian considerations. Now, Tsai's comments came as Hong Kong student activist Joshua Wong, lawmaker Eddie Chu and Lester Schwum, a former Deputy Secretary General of the Hong Kong Federation of Students, were visiting Taiwan for a very brief two-day stay. Now, the Hong Kongers held talks with local politicians and speaking during a press conference, Wong also urged the government here to enact a Refugee Act to help pro-democracy protesters in the territory. Now, the Ministry of the Interior replied to that call by saying laws covering issues related to asylum seeking and refugees are adequate, and he said that existing legal mechanisms serve the issues well. While the Mainland Affairs Council says it welcomes a decision this week by the Hong Kong government to withdraw the controversial extradition bill that has seen three months of protest in the territory. However, Deputy Council Minister Cho Chui Jung said that the Hong Kong government still needs to talk to its people, respond to the demands of protesters and fulfil its commitment to safeguarding freedom and democracy. So, Ralph, a visit and more comments about how the government supports the protesters. Yeah, I, this is consistent with what the government here has been saying throughout most of the summer. So... Since June, I recall the, the president's office and, and the uh, other ministries have been saying that they support the, the activism, the, the call for democracy, and hoping, of course, it doesn't escalate into violence. So the response here was uh, no surprise to me. Um, the fact that uh, Joshua Wong and, and uh, two other people visited from Hong Kong, I think, was um, motivated by a couple things. One is... Um, looking for sympathetic protests here on behalf of the Hong Kong protesters um, before National Day in China, which is the kind of this de facto deadline for China to do something really drastic if it wants to. Um, so that was one thing. The other thing was a call for Parliament to really get going on this asylum bill, which is very tough because of Taiwan's um, rather unofficial relations with Hong Kong. Um, but if they can pass this asylum bill, then the protesters could come here from Hong Kong and presumably stay on a long-term visa. So that was my take on, on uh, Wong's visit and the uh, extradition law progress. It seems that this extradition, or sorry, the, the, this asylum refugee law issue has been so muddied in, in large part due to the actions of 
the government and the DPP majority in the legislative unit, and we've talked about this many times on your show, Gavin, we take a step back. The key thing here is that the draft bill, which which has been sitting in the legislative UN for three years, never included people from China, Hong Kong, and Macau, and for good reason, because uh, under most Taiwan laws and regulations, people from Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong, Macau, and China are treated separately uh, because of the relationship between uh, Taiwan and China. Uh, so you need to have a, a, a new piece of legislation or draft bill that would specifically apply to people from Hong Kong. Then you get into the issue, okay, should it just be for Hong Kong or should it also be from for people from Macau and China because that would be the consistent thing to do. So there is no piece of legislation pending to cover this issue. So people from Hong Kong can come to Taiwan and seek asylum on, a, on an ad hoc basis. I actually think the people from Hong Kong should be happy about that because you could just make your case to the best extent of your ability and you don't have to comply with some very strict parameters that might be in, in laws or regulations if there actually were any. And I stood and see where people of Taiwan are saying like, yes, we want to give asylum to lots of people from Hong Kong. And would these people even really be interested in staying in Taiwan on a long-term basis? You know, the, the experience with asylum seekers from China uh, is not necessarily good either for in the, to the, to, from the perspective of on an ad hoc basis, Taiwan has given asylum to some uh, people from China in the past, going back, say, 20 plus years, even as far back as the aftermath of Tiananmen. And a lot of them just don't stay here. So they, they leave. So you know, th this just ultimately seems like an exercise in public relations. And if if these um, Hong Kong protesters really need to seek asylum and they really want a platform to make their cause, then the obvious places to go are where other Chinese dissidents have mostly gone to, the United States, UK, Germany. I had the privilege of interviewing um, Lam Winky, one of these uh, disappeared, once disappeared booksellers from Hong Kong. He's living here now. He's been here since April. And he really wants this kind of asylum law because it's not, there's no guarantee he can get into a Western country with some of these stronger asylum laws. You know, he's, you know, they speak Chinese, they, they read in Chinese, ethnic Chinese society. So they feel a little bit better here. And they, they feel like, like Joshua Wong said, this is a, you know, it's a democracy. They, you know, they've spoken out in favor of the protesters in Hong Kong. So, you know, let's put some laws behind it and, and try to get more out of it. Um, the bookseller also told me, I found it, he thinks that the Taiwanese don't want this law um, because it will open asylum cases to fraudulent mainland Chinese who come through Hong Kong and make all kinds of cases just basically to get out of China and, and try to seek a better life over here. I don't know if that's how people really feel about it. He's sort of speaking extemporaneously on behalf of the Taiwanese public, so he doesn't really have a, you know, the, the right to say that, I suppose, but that's his view. Well, one of the interesting things about Ralph's uh, uh, comment or, or uh, sharing of what the bookseller told him is it, it almost sounded like the bookseller said, I want you, Taiwan, to give me and my, my, my cohorts a, a basis for asylum that's weaker than what the United States and the UK or other countries, Canada, Australia, are, are, are currently have as their their process. So I want to come here and you should give me a basis to do so and make those parameters even weaker. And, oh, you should do it because uh, we both read Chinese characters. It's a pretty uh, weak argument to make, actually. Again, that, that I don't think that's our, that argument would sell very well with the Taiwan public. However, this is actually not really up to the Taiwan public. It's up to one person, 
President Tsai Ing-wen, she just has to say so, and the DPP legislative majority will immediately drop everything else and pursue this because it's good PR for them as, as we go in, uh, into the election season and get closer to the presidential election. So you could, you could imagine you know, the DPP legislators, president, whoever the vice presidential candidate is going to be for the DPP, they're going to be out there. They would be out there saying, like, you know, we love freedom and democracy so much that so we even passed an asylum law to help those, those victims in Hong Kong. Uh, so it would be good PR for them if they were to do that. And talking about how people in Taiwan support the protesters in Hong Kong, of course, Ralph Joshua Wong did call for the people in Taiwan to rally on the streets of Taipei in support of the protesters. But do you see a majority of people here actually doing that? I don't think the majority will. When I've seen protests in, in Taiwan, they generally are directed at, um, you know, government agencies and once in a while companies and things like that. I suspect you'll see some small you know, relatively small scale, very well organized, you know, clock in, clock out kind of protest. Um, maybe the weekend before Chinese National Day, which was what Joshua Wong had asked for. There are people who are, who are, who are pretty staunch about it. There's some committed, you know, highly ideological activists here who will do it. Um, but I, I don't expect, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 or anything like that. That's a pretty pessimistic assessment. I mean, if given given uh, you know, the size of some of the protests, even if you don't believe, and I don't believe some of the uh, exaggerated claims by organizers in Hong Kong of you know, a few weeks ago, I said 1.7 million uh, attended. Uh, it's probably more like several hundred thousand. Of course, the numbers are never as low as the police estimate. Uh, but uh, given the size of those events in Hong Kong, if there's only 20,000 people or 30,000 people in Taiwan come up to a, a you know a sympathy rally uh, here, sympathy for the protesters in Hong Kong, that's a really low turnout. And it shows that uh, the, there just isn't a a lot of the enthusiasm. Look, we got other issues here. This goes to the whole question of like, why why should Taiwan spend an inordinate amount of time on Hong Kong? If you believe that Taiwan is a different country than China, then the Taiwan's interest in this issue is as uh, only the same to the extent that it would be Canada or Australia's interest in this issue, and not greater. Right, moving on, and in the latest election news from here in Taiwan this week, the KMT stamped its feet, cried foul, and threatened to file a lawsuit against a reporter from Up Media for saying that party officials held talks with China's Taiwan Affairs Office regarding replacing Han Guoyu as its presidential candidate. The Up Media story claimed that KMT Chairman U Jin-e sent former Mainland Affairs Council Deputy Minister Zhang Xianyao to China to discuss replacing Han with former Honhai Chairman Terry Guo. Now, the the KMT chairman denied the story, saying the party has stated on numerous occasions that it will not repeat 2016 when it withdrew its then-presidential candidate Hong Shouju and replaced her with Eric Chu. As for Terry Guo this week, well, a top aide of his announced that the former Honhai chairman won't agree to represent the KMT in the 2020 presidential election if he's asked to replace Han Guoyu. Now, Tsai Xinyu told reporters that if Guo decides to run in January's election, he will do so as an in independent candidate. Now, Guo himself on Sunday of this week took to Facebook to air his views about 2020 hopefuls and what they should be talking about, and he said the focus should be on economic and technological development rather than political mudslinging over political affiliations and topics such as unification versus independence. Guo also vowed to evoke the spirit of former President Chung Jing Guo, and he wrote some political slogans on his Facebook page which read, Industrial Diplomacy – 
and turn economic input into political output and profit. So there you go. Lots to digest there, Ross. That sure was, but he's still not a presidential candidate. So if you keep giving us uh, appetizers and, and wetting the appetite of the voters, but in, until he actually declares, and he might do so in, in the coming days, given certain um, uh, filing deadlines under applicable election laws, uh, until he's a candidate, you know, he's just dancing around the issues. Uh, and it's reasonable to assume he will become a candidate. Uh, so he's floating some of these ideas. And obviously, he's going to focus on economic issues, given his background as a business person. Uh, none of these Facebook statements or you know, he's sending out his surrogates uh, to, to make statements to the media. And, and there were some reports that uh, there's some infighting among his uh, spokespeople as well. Uh, but, but none of this is really generated more of a buzz or enthusiasm for his candidacy. So anything he's been doing or saying in recent days and weeks in public on, on social media certainly hasn't it, it, it helped his support levels. I think that Terry Goal is trying to figure out whether he has enough of a popular mandate to run on his own. I think he's pretty well aware that the, the party isn't going to nominate him. Uh, if they wanted to do that, they could have done it before. They had done their own their opinion polls, um, and I've, I've seen some fairly credible local media saying that the, what he's really trying to do is figure out whether he could get any votes, any serious number of votes, if he ran on his own. And that's why he was trying to talk to the mayor of Taipei and to Wang Jinping about that whole thing. Um, you know, so what he puts on social media may be um, part of that part of that um, investigation he's doing into whether anybody would actually vote for him. Right, Ross, and of course the KMT kerfuffle over, did they talk to the Chinese Taiwan Affairs Office about replacing Han or not? Well, if this story is completely false, and it's not the first time that um, up media, unfortunately, has been accused of, of writing stories that lacked fact, uh, but to the extent the story is false, then the party has done the right thing. Let them prove it in court and get damages and a public apology retraction from uh, media. Uh, but, but keeping a bit of perspective here, the fact that the Kuomintang has uh, channels of communication with the government in Beijing should not be a surprise. It is not illegal, so let's not accuse them of being uh, engaged in any kind of traitorous behavior. I mean, this is a party that has public forums with uh, the Communist Party and, and delegations of uh, party officials or elected legislators or city councilors of the Kuomintang periodically do visit China. Um, that has occurred even during this year in the course of uh, preparing for the presidential election. Uh, so the fact that they might have communication or communication might have happened, <clears throat> that should not surprise us at all. And again, it's, it's not illegal. You might not like it and voters might hold it against them. Uh, given some of China's behavior towards Taiwan. And that would be understandable as well if some voters say you shouldn't uh, have any kind of communication. Uh, but whether or not this message uh, specifically, as, a, as alleged in the media report, was discussed in the meeting, well, I guess, uh, A, we'd have to find out whether or not such meetings really occurred, and then it would only be the principals who were in the room at the time who would know what, what was actually said. But, but ultimately, it's hard to see how this will impact voter behavior decisions, uh, if people will even be thinking about this come uh, the days prior to the election when, when voters make their final decision or when they go to the voting booth and, and vote uh, next January. And Ralph, do you think this will all be forgotten about come January? It's hard to say. I, 
whether the up media report is true or not, um, you know, there's a couple things that stand out. One is that there's always been the suspicion since my angel was president that the, you know, the KMT and or, you know, anybody they have in government at any level is talking to the Chinese, um, unbeknownst to the public here. So there's been that suspicion um, all along, and, you, and it's sort of understandable because that was happening toward the end of uh, the, the Ma years. Um, and then the idea that um, that China may prefer Terry Guo is also something that has some, has I think is already resonating with some voters, and it probably will continue to if he runs, uh, which is that because of his factory properties in China, the, the, the massive amounts of holdings he has there, uh, China could control him pretty well if you were the candidate, if you were the president, um, you know, simply by by messing around with some of his his assets over there and making it hard for him to do business. And let's move on from politics and talk about international foreign affairs. And this topic features and focuses on Taiwan's future diplomatic ties with the Solomon Islands, which remain up in the air, with the Pacific Islands' top envoy in Taipei this week, saying that Honorara has yet to make a final decision on its assessment report on the matter. And it doesn't know yet whether it will sever ties with Taiwan in favour of Beijing. Now, the statement was in reference to a report by a cross-party task force, which has been charged with evaluating the Taiwan ties with the Solomon Islands, and that's yet to be submitted to the Pacific Island Nation's Prime Minister. However, the diplomat's comments did come after reports surfaced. These reports and these comments were made by an opposition lawmaker in the Solomon Islands, who claimed that his country is already to sever ties with Taipei in favour of Beijing. Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here keeps repeating that everything is lovely bubbly and mosey-hosey and wonderful wonderful, but apparently they're refusing to say whether or not the Foreign Minister of the Solomon Islands will in fact be visiting Taiwan this Sunday, Ross. So you, you mentioned the words up in the air in your intro to this this topic. So yeah, we don't know whether the foreign minister of the Solomon Islands is up in the air as we speak because it does take a bit of a time. There's a number of uh, transfers involved in getting from Solomon Islands to Taipei. So if he is in fact coming to Taipei, then maybe uh, by the time uh, you know, this show is, is broadcast, uh, he will be on the flight, or maybe he won't, or maybe he's already in Beijing, or maybe he'll go to Beijing after he goes to Taipei, or maybe, as the foreign ministry here says, all is well. Uh, we simply don't know, but here, here's one of the key things to keep in mind. Every time this happens with, with a country that has formal relations with Taiwan, up until that, those last final days or moment, everyone says all is well. The Taiwan government says all is well. The other country says all is well. They could even be signing agreements in, in the weeks or months preceding this issue, even though internally they would have already been deciding that. So uh, a few weeks ago, Taiwan and Solomon Islands some, signed some agreement over visas or you know something that ultimately is, is kind of minor. And, and People here in Taiwan and the government, they say, oh, you see, this is a sign that all is well. No, it is not a sign of anything, right? It's just a sign of business as usual, while the ultimate decision makers, which in Solomon Islands appears to be the prime minister, you know, gather information and negotiate with China uh, before they make their ultimate decision. So if this announcement is made, none of us should be surprised at all. The fact that uh, the foreign minister might come here and then a day later they'll announce this, again, shouldn't surprise us at all. It's very possible, as with other uh, uh, similar situations, the foreign minister does come here and he holds his hand out and says, give us a big check for development aid. Uh, you could call that uh, green mail if you want. 
Uh, but the reality is Taiwan has maintained the relationship not because the Solomon Islands loves the nice people of Taiwan or because they love to visit Taipei uh, or, or because they love democracy. They maintain this relationship because Taiwan has given them financial aid. And if uh, China is going to overwhelm the Solomon Islands with offers of aid, purchases of, of Solomon Islands exports or uh, uh, tourists that are going to go to Solomon Islands, you know, and people could debate all they want that, oh, this is, this is bad. You don't want to be in this relationship with China. Well, you know, like 170 or 80 countries already are. Uh, so you know, the Solomon Islands to join the rest of the world minus – 16. Uh, Again, we we shouldn't be surprised. Life will go on, Gavin. If if Solomon Islands de-recognizes Taiwan and and establishes relations with with the People's Republic of China, I assure you we will go on here in Taiwan just fine. Uh, A couple things. Again, uh, the Solomon's case over the past 90 or 100 days or whatever stands out simply because um, the Solomon's has been rather public about what it's doing. In most cases where an ally is about to switch ties or even considering it, you don't hear much. There might be a couple of blips here and there, but in this case, it's just monitored on and on and on. You know, the stuff out of Honiara, the stuff out of here, the stuff out of Australia about what's going on. Um, so that's put the government here in kind of a difficult position to keep responding to it. The fact is they still do have relations with them, and it's up in the air, as both um, both of you have just said. So um, it's, it, it is hard to know anything can happen. It doesn't really matter what, who's saying what to who at the moment. I agree with that. And I also agree that it's not surprising if uh, Solomon's does sever relations. Taiwan is used to this. It's, I think it would be the sixth country to do so under uh, Tsai watch. Um, and a lot of the people I've talked to will say, well, as long as Taiwan has five or ten of these countries to stick up for it in the United Nations, and things are basically okay. There's enough legitimacy there, especially if the informal relations with the U.S., Japan, etc., are are strong at the same time. And I'm sure, as Ross is saying, people here are not going to freak out about it. Life will certainly go on. Right, of course, Ross, Ralph made a point there about this has been a bit of a high-profile case with the Solomon Islands being very vocal about it. Well, then the interesting thing there is you got to ask yourself... Is this somebody who's genuinely my friend or they're just motivated by other considerations? That's why I said a few minutes earlier, they're not motivated by a love for democracy and that Taiwan is democracy and respects human rights and all those really good things. They are clearly motivated by no surprise what's best for the Solomon Islands economically, politically, its status in in Oceania, Asia Pacific, and, and ultimately globally, and Solomon Islands is a country that's in need of not just bilateral assistance, but multilateral assistance from international organizations. And when China is is not a country that you recognize, then you have difficulty getting that kind of assistance, whether it's through UN-affiliated agencies or others. China's going to be pretty nasty to you if if, uh, you don't recognize them. So we shouldn't begrudge the Solomon Islands doing what's best for for what you know, or what they perceive is best for them, and uh, if they do recognize Taiwan, you know we we wish them well. Uh, but clearly, their motivations isn't altruistic, and the fact that they've publicly had this hand wringing exercise for a few months, it doesn't say much good about them, or right? it doesn't say much good about their political decision making processes or what their motivations are. Ralph. Yeah, I think um, there's some cultural differences, too, between some of the, the South Pacific 
islands and um, other 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 countries and how this is handled. I if you like, if you go to some of these places, people it's a small countries. People are fairly open. If you go down as a reporter and say, "Hey, are you considering switching ties?" Somebody will come out and say, "Well, what, why? Yes, we are, and here's what's happening." And it becomes Taiwan's burden to to, tra- to tell the ambassador here to shut up about it, which is what's happened before. I think with Palau, if I remember right. Um, whereas you know, you get other countries and they they play by the rules of kind of standard large country democracy where they don't talk too much about it until they're sure they know what they want to do. So I, I don't know if it's so much the psalm as not being a friend. I mean, it's, it's certainly it's a, all friendships and diplomacy are really practical in nature, but I don't. I think it's just sort of the way things are there. Small country, people do a lot of talking, they're open, and this kind of stuff comes out. Right, Ross, could we go into conspiracy theory sort of time here and say, do you think possibly Beijing is playing a background role here and dragging it out closer to Taiwan's election? Well, it's already close to the election. So whether or not it happens um, mid-September, mid-October, mid-November, mid-December, it's almost irrelevant. Maybe a more important uh, factor here is simply that it's been a long time, right? So Beijing is just getting a bit antsy uh, since the last time they forced a country into de-recognizing, or persuaded, I should say, (laughs) persuaded a country to de-recognize the Republic of China and to recognize the People's Republic of China. So uh, it's it's kind of about that time. Right. So you know, Ralph mentioned the you know, six countries that that have done this during the Thai administration. But it's been a while. So probably over there in Beijing, they're, they're looking at oh, what's our, our standard operating procedure for making Taiwan squirm. That would be military exercises, uh, not letting Taiwan attend some international organization meeting. So you know, we had the WHA a few months ago. UN is upcoming, UN General Assembly. So obviously Taiwan can't attend that. Uh, but it's been a while for a de-recognition. So there's probably somebody over in Beijing saying, oh, wait, we got to do it. Time's, time's a cub for, for a de-recognition. Uh, so uh, whether it's now or, or uh, the day before the presidential election, you know, probably irrelevant. Uh, it, and it's kind of already sunk in with the public here. So if it were to happen shortly before the election, as opposed to today, uh, it, it, it would be kind of hard for the Guomindang to use it as a, as a tool in any greater way. So, you know, they could use it today successfully or not. We don't know. Uh, and they could use it in December or the first week and a half of January. But probably it doesn't change its effectiveness for the Guomindang. No, they could be practicing removing the flag from the lobby of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ross, because you always like to see that, don't you? The janitor. There, there's always that, and I'm sure Ralph Ralph knows the photo as well, right? There's every time there's a derecognition, we get to see the the backside of the janitor <laughs> leaning over, I'm taking the flag out, taking the course. yeah, taking the flag. Uh, you know, it raises the you know the, the very obvious logical question, which is. Instead of embarrassing or humiliating yourself every time this happens, just remove all the flags from the lobby. <laughs> there are other displays that could be in the lobby of, of, of the Republic of China Foreign Ministry besides this diminishing number of countries that have formal relations. You know, we don't have to copy every other foreign ministry around the world that, that does this. It's, you know, the, the 17 countries, they're not going to claim it's a horrible breach of protocol if the flags aren't in the MOFA lobby. Uh, you know, they could take it one step further. Why do they just put the flags of all the countries that have offices in Taiwan as well as embassies? Or you could have the, the embassies on one side and the representative offices on the other. Anyway, uh, both is just setting themselves up for a bad PR moment. Uh, but yeah, Gavin, you're probably right. The guy is, is probably limbering up 
you know, he's doing some squats and, and, and some stretching, uh, getting his muscles ready for that, that scene when he has to lean over, pick up that big flagpole and amber out of the lobby with the Solomon Islands flag, which raises another important question, Gavin. What does he do with that Solomon Islands flag after derecognition? Where does it go? eBay. That's a joke. I don't know if it goes to eBay. I have no idea if it goes to eBay. I have no idea where the flags go. Maybe they give them to him as a gift. <laughs> so they, you, 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 you all are forgetting about the other photo that we need to expect, which is about three or four days after the break in relations, we'll have a the uh, foreign minister or the prime minister go to Beijing, stand up on a stage with a Chinese flag, shake hands very solemnly, and uh, and swear to uphold the, the one China principle. Now we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week. Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Tuesday urged the Norwegian government to correct Taiwan's designation on resident permits issued to Taiwanese nationals living in the European country. Now, Ministry spokeswoman Joanne O told reporters that the Taipei mission in Sweden has written to Norway's foreign minister requesting it take the matter seriously and correct the wording on the residence permits. Now, the statement comes after a group of Taiwanese expats in Norway filed a lawsuit against the Norwegian Norwegian government accusing it of changing their citizenship to Chinese from Taiwanese on said residence permits. Now, that lawsuit was filed at a district court in Oslo on August the 29th, and a court hearing is scheduled to be held early next year. Now, if you're interested, the plaintiffs in the case are the Norwegian Directorate of Immigration, the Immigration Appeals Board, and the Oslo Police Precinct. So, Ross, there you go. They're taking a country to court over its ID cards. The sad thing here is is that these Taiwan expatriates in Norway, which is not a large number of persons, have been talking about this for a long time. So they took to social media, I think it was sometime over a year ago, to, to say, like, this is horrible. You know, we need to change this. We're going to try and take administrative action and we'll get a lawyer. And it's taken them so long. So uh, you could tell that this is not really an issue that uh, a lot of people feel highly motivated to spend time or money on. I, I could understand that it would offend uh, Taiwan people who want to see that their citizenship is accurately reflected on ID cards when they live or travel overseas. And, and to be fair to the global community, most countries from, from a administrative perspective do handle this appropriately. You know, they found a way uh, to designate Taiwan in a way that respects the dignity of Taiwan, does not reflect that they recognize the government here if, in a diplomatic sense, uh, but they do respect the travel documents and, and they generally will indicate accurately the origin of the person as being Taiwan, Taiwanese, Taipei, Chinese Taipei in some cases. And generally when these things come up in the news, and they periodically do come up, uh, you know, some kind of visa application form that Russia, for example, was in the news recently uh, w with a designation for travelers from Taiwan that, that was unacceptable to the government and, and the public here in Taiwan. Uh, generally speaking, the government here, whether it's a DPP government or a KMT government, they've been pretty good about bringing this up with, with foreign governments. But, but you know, MOFA, they're not going to like when I say this, but th this is ultimately a, a, a MOFA issue in, in the sense that 
They need to communicate with governments around the world on an ongoing basis. They could say, well, we know you're, you don't have formal diplomatic relations with us, but here's how another country does it, and it doesn't cause a, a blow-up in that country's relationship with the People's Republic of China when they refer to Taiwan travelers this way. So we're just asking you to do the same. This is something that MOFA here should be doing on an ongoing basis around the world. Now, it gets a little more difficult when they don't even have a representative office in the country, uh, and there, you know, there, there's resources limitations as well, so you can't have a rep office for Taiwan everywhere around the world. Some countries, there's just not a lot of bilateral trade, not a lot of Taiwan expatriates living in those countries. There's probably little hope of a dramatic increase in bilateral trade or, or expatriates living in those countries. So you can understand the justification for not having an office. Uh, but when you don't have an office and you do it on a fly-in basis, so if you're flying in from the, the representative office in Stockholm because they cover Norway uh, and, and the government in Oslo, then you can understand that the Norwegians are also not going to prioritize this. So, okay, you know, hey, good luck to those expatriates. Hopefully they'll win their law lawsuit against the Norwegian government. And uh, at the end of that exercise, there'll probably be some people in the Norway government who feel a little frustrated with Taiwan. It's not going to cause them to have any greater affection for Taiwan. And they'll continue to do a lot of business with China and not really be helpful to Taiwan in international organizations or other aspects of Taiwan's efforts to be part of the international community. I was just thinking when I saw the story how strange it would be as a Taiwanese national to um, leave, you know, go through immigration, leaving Norway or coming back into Norway with a an ID card that says you're Chinese and a passport that says you're from Taiwan. I, I wonder how the the authorities there reconcile that, or if they really care about it. The other thing I thought of is that Norway stood up to China pretty staunchly uh, over awarding the Nobel Prize to Liu Xiaobo, and China made a big stink about that for quite a while after that prize came out because the Nobel Committee is based in Norway. So um, they, the country, what I mean, does have the will and the, the legacy, the history of standing up to China when it wants to. But you pick your battles, and, and Taiwan doesn't, you know, we don't, might not... Taiwan might not be a battle that Norway wants to pick, and also Norway's been trying to walk back from you know that period of, of uh, deterioration in relations. Yes, of course, what they did was uh, extremely noble, and pun intended. Uh, but uh, you know, they, like a lot of countries that get into those situations with China, then they, they spend the next few years trying to fix it and, and, and you know, restore positive relations because ultimately you know, money talks and, and the trade relationship is so important for a country like Norway with, with the People's Republic of China. Uh, but you know, they might be willing to, to have that argument with China over something like a Nobel Prize. Uh, or giving asylum to a Chinese dissident, uh, but are they going to want to have arguments with China over Taiwan? Generally, you know, very few countries are willing to do that, especially from a government perspective. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen on Tuesday called for greater recognition of military service and encouraged members of the armed forces to wear their uniforms more often as a sign of pride in their role safeguarding the country, to use her words. Now, Tsai made the statement while marking Armed Forces Day, and she went on to say that she hopes the public can salute servicemen and women in uniform for their efforts when they meet them on the street, and she believes that such signs of respect will form a stronger bond between the public and the armed forces. So, Ross, soldiers on the streets in uniforms in Taiwan. Of course, this happened before 
course. Yeah, well, that, that was a very different era. It was called martial law, uh, authoritarianism, dictatorship, totalitarianism, and whatever other negative descriptions of the era uh, one would like to use. But if we fast forward to 2019, and the reason why she's bringing this up, obviously this culture does not exist in Taiwan anymore. So when uh, what used to be conscripts are now people doing the abbreviated national service or, or people who are uh, – uh, career enlistees or officers uh, go off duty, it seems like they get out of uniform as quickly as possible. They're much more inclined to change out of their uniform at their post and then leave post and, and travel uh, home or wherever they're going rather than wear their uniform when they're off duty and traveling um, back, back to their civilian homes or visiting their families, etc. So the culture just does not exist here. And that contrasts with other countries. Uh, people in the audience who spend uh, time in Singapore would know that you frequently see young men, go. they call going back. They say they're going back from, from their camp uh, to their homes, visiting family on, on weekends, for example, and, and they wear their uniforms. And that's just part of the culture. And the same thing would apply in other countries, uh, whether it's Israel, um, parts of Europe. You're just used to seeing young men, especially in countries with, with mandatory conscription, where you know, hundreds of thousands of men in any given young men at any given time, might be, or in Israel, men and women uh, would be doing national service. So uh, you know, it, it just doesn't exist here. And the president's saying this is probably not going to cause um, people to say like, "Oh, I'm going off duty, but I'm going to wear my uniform back to my home." Uh, you know, the only way this would change would be uh, the very simple method of ordering uh, military personnel that when you are off duty and traveling from base to your civilian home, you still must wear your uniform. So there's a very easy solution here. Will this alone cause members of the public to get excited or to salute people or go up to people and, on the street and say, thank you so much for all that you do? Uh, the, the answer to that is no. I think it's a risk-free offer a nice gesture from the president to do this. As you know, the president has been trying to stimulate um, domestic defense industry and to improve the, the military's capabilities all around. And I think her her wish or her, uh, her plea, if you will, goes back into the Ma years when there were some issues, there was uh, some significant morale issues involving, um, I think, can't remember the details of the case, but there was a, a, a gentleman in the armed forces who was worked way too hard, if I remember it right, and that set off some protests and a lot of discussion about um, how long men should serve in, in the armed forces. And then you fast forward it again to today. I, I do see people wearing their uniforms here and there, not often, not all the time, not every day, but once in a while you see somebody on a train or, or whatever wearing their fatigues, and um, if somebody were to stop and salute them, it's would probably go a long way to boosting that person's morale. Um, and then you have the, uh, you might come full circle someday because you get uh, guys wearing camouflage gear and they're not even in the military just because it looks cool. So someday you might not even know who's who. Yes. Anyway, before we go, the local news was a buzz earlier this week with slime, or rather a story about the children's toy called slime, as it was reported that the squashy substance can result in the loss of fingerprints. Now, numerous reports cited a doctor telling the story of how she recently treated an elementary school student who developed an allergic reaction to slime which she had been playing with during her summer vacation. Apparently it caused the girl to have hypersensitivity in her hands and her fingerprints disappeared. 
disappeared. So, apparently slime is pretty dangerous stuff. So, Ross, as a lawyer, it causes allergic reactions and is poisonous. Now, this doesn't sound like a toy that children should be allowed to play with, let alone something that should be sold to children. But it does, of course, sound like something that a person eyeing a job as a career criminal should possibly invest in. There are two different angles there, as you said. One is the consumer protection angle, and uh, we could uh, easily foresee an overreaction by consumer protection officials here in Taiwan because they often do overreact. Uh, maybe the family will sue the manufacturer as well for uh, putting a dangerous product and, and depriving their child of, of fingerprints uh, for, for the rest of the person's life, which would be a terrible outcome. And then, yeah, it, it's also a public message to criminals. Go for it. You want to break into Gavin's home? Then slime up your fingers and burn off your, your fingerprints and then you could break in uh, you know, uh, of course gloves is an alternative as well uh, but if you want to be safe slime up your fingers and, and, and commit all sorts of crime and uh, just uh, don't leave any DNA behind <laughs> after you've uh, slimed up your fingers. So Ralph you confiscated your children's slime I certainly did I, I'm not sure about the loss of fingerprints my kids seem to both have those because you can tell they try to get into our, our smartphones and their fingerprints don't match ours. Hey, maybe that's because they don't have any anymore. I didn't think of it that way. But more to the point, we had to take it all away because the slime, regardless of what it does to your hands, it does a lot of things to your clothes, um, to sometimes to the floor, sometimes to the bed sheets, sometimes to whatever else it comes into contact with. It's supposed to be non-toxic, of course, but that doesn't mean it, it won't stain almost anything it comes into contact with. Um, and it was just it was appearing in too many parts of the home, so we put it away in a little box near the door. And I told them they can take it out into the park if they want, and they completely lost interest in it at that point. Well, there you go. What a good idea! Get rid of his slime. Well, uh, you know, what do you expect for uh, you know something that costs but fifty or a hundred NT is probably made in China and, and is filled with chemicals and has a very viscous kind of property about it you know this this can't be good gavin right it's just oozing danger no i will not be buying any slime anyway that's where we'll leave it here on taiwan this week and i've been joined in the studio today by ross feingold good evening and on the telephone by ralph jennings Thanks again, Gavin. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And there won't be a show next Friday as we'll be at home munching on our tasty mooncakes. Yes, Ross Feingold will be munching on a mooncake. But don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.